I feel like I should be wearing cowboy boots after that one. <laughs> well, good morning to our friends online and good morning to those of us who are here in the room. I know many of us are already thinking with excitement about all the fun we're going to have tonight, whether that's watching the Cowboys game or maybe your eyes are already glazing over in anticipation of that sugar high. <laughs> well, when I was a teenager, my friends and I decided that we were too old to go trick-or-treating on Halloween. And so we got together at a friend's house and watched scary movies instead. And when I was a senior in high school, the big hit that year was a horror film called I Know What You Did Last Summer. I see people nodding their heads. They remember it too. I don't actually remember watching it. I don't know if I was too chicken or maybe my parents wouldn't let me. And by the way, I don't recommend you watch it either. But it was all everybody talked about that year. So I can tell you the basic premise. These four Teenage friends had done something terrible the summer before, and somehow they had gotten away with it, or so they thought. But now they begin receiving these eerie messages that someone knows and is out for revenge. And hopefully none of us have faced a situation exactly like that one before, but I think what makes that movie so scary is that we all know the feeling. We know what it's like to be plagued by shame and regret. We know that fear of being found out, of someone discovering that we're not quite as perfect as we seem to be. We've dreaded what might happen if we really got what we deserved. And maybe we've wondered if the forgiveness and grace of God is really big enough. We are in week two of a sermon series that we are calling Grace Will Lead Me Home. And it comes from the song you just heard, Amazing Grace. As we walk together through the book of Hosea, we are taking a deep dive into the overwhelming, boundless grace of God for broken and sinful people like you and like me. And the prophet Hosea's life becomes an object lesson for us. In chapter one, God gave Hosea a seemingly impossible assignment. He told him, go and marry a promiscuous woman. Well, the marriage, as we learned last week, does not go well. In chapter three, God raises the stakes. If you thought God's initial request was hard, just wait until you see what God asks Hosea to do next. Listen as I read Hosea three, verses one through five. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Well, this is no fairy tale love story. God asks Hosea to go and to reconcile with his wife after she has walked out on him and committed adultery. I mean, if we were reading this story for advice on Christian marriage, 
This would be a confusing and discouraging example, to say the least. But even though this isn't holding up the ideal for Christian marriage, it is a love story nonetheless. It is the story of a lover who will go to great lengths to redeem his beloved. Now, Larry told us last week that this story is really three stories in one. It's the story of one particular couple, Hosea and Gomer. It's a story about God and the people of Israel 750 years before Christ. And it's our story. And so this week, as we explore these three stories further, we will see God's beautiful love for us and the price that God is willing to pay to redeem us. Now, as this story unfolds, the first thing that we see is a loving pursuit. Now, this is not your typical boy meets girl and they live happily ever after love story. Over and over again, Hosea's wife Gomer has been unfaithful. I mean, imagine the pain and the suffering that that must have caused him. And it wasn't a secret. We learned last week that two of Gomer's children weren't his. They were public evidence of her betrayal, walking up and down the neighborhood streets with the other kids, sitting beside Hosea on the pew on Sabbath morning. And Gomer's unfaithfulness wasn't an isolated event they could put behind him. It was an ongoing reality. The grass was always greener somewhere else. Can you just picture how the neighbors might have been? I can just picture them with their pointing fingers and their judgmental looks saying, I know what you did last summer, or I know what you did last night. And this must have tortured Hosea. According to Jewish law, adultery was punishable by death. And we might expect Gomer to get what she deserves. But this isn't a story of justice. This is a story of grace. And the Israelites were living out this same tragic drama. Over and over, God had provided for them by leading them with signs and wonders out of a land of slavery and into the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. And over and over again, they tried to take matters into their own hands. Instead of trusting God to provide for them and to lead them, they chased after false gods in pursuit of pleasure and of wealth. I mean, how many times will God put up with their betrayal and their rebellion? And this is our story too, isn't it? Over and over again, we find ourselves messing up. We stray from God's good plan. We hurt those we love, and we end up offending God too. For the last two weeks, my mind keeps returning to one particular line of a hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Apostle Paul describes it as being enslaved to sin. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And how does God respond? Well, too often we picture God as pointing that accusing finger and saying, I know what you did last summer. And God does know it's true. God knows we mess up. God sees our failures God knows our wandering hearts, but God doesn't respond by pointing an accusing finger. God responds with a loving pursuit. Let's look together at verse one. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. I mean, while Gomer was still chasing after green grass elsewhere, God told Hosea to go after her. 
And God didn't tell Hosea to go to scold her or to humiliate her or to punish her, but to show love to her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Hosea is to be a living example of God's unrelenting love for his people. Now, we are going to take a time out just for a quick sidebar about raisin cakes. I mean, we're in the middle of some really heavy topics, and what's the big deal about raisin cakes, right? Well, you could say that God hates a Christmas fruitcake just as much as anybody else. No? Okay, maybe that's not it. So, raisin cakes are not really quite like a fruitcake. They're made out of pressed and dried grapes. And they were a rare treat in Israel, a delicacy. However, they were also often used in idol worship. The people of Israel who worked the land, they were always drawn after a desire for bigger yields, right? For bigger herds, for more abundant harvests. And their neighbors suggested that their God, an idol called Baal, could make both lands and people more fertile. And so the Israelites turned away from God to worship Baal. This is where the raisin cakes come in. But even as the Israelites are chasing after Baal and his raisin cakes, God lovingly pursues them. And God pursues them not for what they could do for him, but for what he could do for them. He pursued them because his love was so great that he could not hold back. When we read this passage with New Testament eyes, It's not hard to see that God has sent Christ to love us while we were still living spiritually adulterous lives as his enemies. Think about the way that Jesus was described in the New Testament. The people who hated him called him the friend of sinners. He was infamous among the religious leaders for his kindness and his attention to those who were the farthest from God. There's a 19th century poem that I love, written by Francis Thompson, that describes this kind of loving pursuit. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Now, if you know your canines, you know that hounds are excellent trackers. Once they catch a scent, they'll follow it all over God's green earth until they track it down. That's what makes them such good hunting dogs. And so this poem describes how the human soul is always chasing after happiness. Whether we're looking for happiness in sin or in human love, It's always disappointed, always left wanting. And just like a hound who follows persistently after the scent of a rabbit, Christ patiently and persistently follows after the fleeing human soul. So this tender, insistent love of Christ draws nearer and nearer, pursuing just like a hound, until it finally becomes obvious that only within the love of Christ can true happiness be found. And when we finally turn to face our pursuer, we see no pointing fingers. God's not disgusted and turned away by our sin. God relentlessly pursues us, stubbornly refuses to give up on us, and loves us. And instead of the wrath that we so often expect, God goes to great lengths to show love to us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, the hound of heaven came to earth and followed us even as we fled and gave everything to win us. 
as the story in Hosea 3 continues to unfold, we will see how much it cost him. Because next we see a lavish purchase. As Hosea lovingly pursues his wife, Gomer, he finds that she's so far gone that she's now in slavery, perhaps in a brothel. And what a pitiful sight she must have been, wounded and broken, afraid and alone, no longer seeing herself as someone's beloved, but as someone to be used and discarded. And we partner with missionaries, KJ and Jenny Jessen, who work to rescue and rehabilitate young women, girls really, who have been trafficked around the world. And Jenny shared a story about one particular girl that they had rescued who lived in their home and was going through their rehabilitation program. I'm going to read you the beginning her words. Jenny says, my girl, she ran. A wounded woman child, more afraid of being loved than used, ran from the light and tried to find her own way in the dark. As she was slamming drawers and stuffing bags, I quietly got dressed and packed my own backpack. She stomped down the stairs toward the front door, and I followed her resolutely into the dark. As she keeps telling the story, we can see that this girl is angry. She trudged through the streets, and she was lashing out at Jenny with vulgar words and with hateful accusations, and Jenny walked quietly beside her, speaking persistent, gentle words of love. After an hour of walking through the dark streets, they finally reached this uh, dark slum where her exploitation had begun. She banged on her grandparents' door to wake them up, pushed inside, and slammed the door in Jenny's face. And as Jenny stood outside of that bamboo and cardboard shack, she made her last stand. She said to the girl through the door, I love you, sweet girl. Nothing can change that. I will come get you as soon as you change your mind. I will be praying for you and waiting for you to come home. And for the next 12 hours, Jenny said that she was caught in a riptide of grief with waves of tears crashing over her so that she could barely gasp for breath. And don't you think that's how Hosea must have felt? But our God is a God of rescue. The next day, the girl returned home. She said that even as she and Jenny had walked through those dark streets together, she could hear the Spirit of God telling her spirit, go home. Go home, you made a mistake. And finally, she listened. Gomer had made a mistake. A thousand smaller mistakes and some huge ones besides. But God, through Hosea, shows us that he will trudge through any dark streets. He will go to any lengths to redeem his beloved. Hosea tells us how it happened for Gomer. In verse 2, he says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Now, Gomer was already his wife. It was tragic that he would have to buy her back. We don't know how long he had to scrimp and save to sacrifice his savings for his beloved, who should have been his, exclusively his, all along. Hosea had to buy Gomer back from a party who never had the right to own her. How many times, how many of us are serving false masters who never had a right to own us? And when we expect God to point a finger, he doesn't. God trudges through the dark streets beside us, urging us to come home. God says, yes, I know what you did, but I love you. I know what you did, but I bought you anyway. 
You see, God created us, breathed his own breath of life into us so that God could love us and have a relationship with us. And we strayed, thinking we could chart our own course, always looking for greener pastures elsewhere. But as we stumbled and fell, our loving God couldn't bear to watch us suffering from our own self-inflicted pain. He, we had allowed ourselves to become enslaved to sin, and the only way to buy back our freedom was through an impossible sacrifice. And even though it would cost him everything, our God did not hold back. He gave his life for us to purchase our freedom. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, the price that Jesus paid is so much greater than the silver and the barley that Hosea paid for Gomer. Jesus made the most lavish purchase of all. It cost him everything. Think about it. Jesus left the glory of heaven and humbled himself as a man to show us what real love looks like. He gave up all that. And then in his moment of greatest need, Jesus was abandoned by his disciples. He was betrayed by one of them. He took on the agony of the sins of the world, the agony so great that it made him just sweat drops of blood. He was humiliated and rejected by the religious leaders. He was beaten and mocked by the Roman guards. And he willingly endured an extremely painful death on the cross. And he did it all for us, for me, and for you. He willingly suffered and died on behalf of all who were unfaithful, who were prone to wander. It was an impossible sacrifice. And yet, his great love and grace compelled him to give his life for you and for me. And you know what? It doesn't run out. You were purchased when Jesus rescued you. And you are purchased today. No matter what you've done since then, you can't outdo or undo Christ's lavish purchase on your behalf. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. You are his. When we are prone to wander, Jesus Christ urges us, come home. You are my beloved. After this lavish purchase, as the story continues to unfold, the next thing we see is a lasting promise. Gomer returns home with Hosea, and she slowly, gradually begins to learn a new way of doing life. She learns that the allure of greener grass elsewhere was an empty promise. She's shocked by the kindness and the gentleness of her husband. She learns that faithfulness and fidelity are not just a duty, but a joy. And she learns that comfort and security can only be found in a relationship that lasts. The Israelites will have to learn the same lesson. After turning their backs on God, they'll be conquered by the neighboring Assyria and deported to live in exile. And after many years of placing their hopes in earthly leaders and in the structures of religion and in trying to manipulate their own fate, all of these things will come to ruin. Verse 4 tells us that Israel's citizens would have no more kings and leaders, no more of their traditional religious practices and shrines, and no more divination. But there's hope yet for the Israelites. The British pastor G. Campbell Morgan says that desolation is the opportunity of remembering. Desolation is the opportunity of remembering. 
when we experience a loss, it creates a doorway of hope, an opportunity to turn to God to meet our needs and to fill that void. And so you see, in this uh, chapter, we learn that God's discipline and God's love go hand in hand. Hebrews 12 tells us the Lord disciplines the one he loves for our good. And when the Israelites seem to have lost everything, they will finally return to God. Remember I told you about that poem, The Hound of Heaven? Let's see how beautifully this poem describes God's invitation to return. It's written in Old English, so we'll walk through it together. It says, All which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, I didn't take all this stuff from you to harm you. I took it so that you would see that I have all that you need and more. He says, in your childish ignorance, you thought that everything was lost. But return to me and you'll see that I have blessings in abundance just waiting for you at home. So come, my beloved child, take my hand and come home. Well, what does this mean for the Israelites in Hosea's time? It means that everything that God took from the Israelites, he took not for their harm, but just so that they would seek comfort and security in God alone, the only one who could truly provide. Everything the Israelites felt was lost, God could provide for them in abundance if they would just return to him. And so as we read the rest of the story, we see that although some will continue to spurn God's love, others will return and offer God the trembling devotion that such gracious love deserves. Look with us at verse 5. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. As the Israelites return to God, he will bring them back from exile to the promised land. And many generations after, a descendant of David will turn out to be the promised Messiah. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the story of Hosea and Gomer, the story of God and the Israelites, finally reaches its ultimate fulfillment. Gomer and her children, as well as the people of Israel, will finally understand the true source of all blessings. The blessings are not the things that God provides. The greatest blessing of all is God himself. You see, as we look at Jesus, in Jesus' life, we see a loving pursuit. He left heaven, he came to earth, and he lived as a friend of sinners. In Jesus' death, we see a lavish purchase. He suffered and died for our sins, and it cost him everything. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see a lasting promise. He offers us new life. He knows that we will continue to mess up, but his spirit continually prods us. There is a better way. Repent and come back to me. Follow me. Your home is with me always. Acts 3.19 reiterates that same promise. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, once we give up our stubborn insistence on trying to do things our own way, we realize that what we have been seeking all along was right there in God's outstretched hand. 
God offers us a lasting promise of grace and forgiveness. If only we will be willing to receive it. The message of Hosea 3 that God gives us is this. Stop running. Stop trying to forge your own happiness. Open yourself up to my love and grace and find blessings aplenty. I want to close with a story of a boy who built a little toy sailboat. Maybe you've heard it before. The little boy worked so hard on his boat, every meticulous detail. He built the little sail, and he had it all fixed up and tarred and painted. He took it to the lake, and he pushed it in, hoping that it would sail. Well, it worked too well. As the little boy watched his boat with great excitement begin to move, the wind carried it farther and farther until it disappeared from view. And the little boy went home brokenhearted. Well, sometime later, he was walking downtown, and he walks past a secondhand store, and right there in the window, he sees his boat. He gets so excited, he walks in, and he says to the owner, that's my boat. And he goes to the window, and he picks it up, and he starts to walk out the door. Well, the store owner stopped him and said, wait a minute, son, that's my boat. I bought it. The little boy says, no, it's mine. See, look at the little, here's the scratches and the lines where I hammered it and I filed it. I made this boat. The man said, I'm sorry, son. If you want it, you're going to have to buy it. Well, the little boy didn't have any money. So he goes home and he works hard and he saves all of his pennies. And finally, he had enough money to buy the boat. He went in and bought the little boat. And as he leaves the store, he's holding the little boat to his chest. And he can be heard saying, you're my boat. Twice, you're my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. And friends, can you hear the loving words that Jesus is saying to you today? You are mine. You are my beloved child. First, you're mine because I made you. And second, you're mine because I bought you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are prone to wander. We feel it. God, we know that we mess up. And God, you lovingly pursue us even as we're fleeing. God, we are so grateful for that. Lord, we are humbled by your grace that would make such a lavish purchase, such an impossible sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, we are so grateful for your lasting promise that you tell us, come home. We always have a home with you. And so God, we ask that today you would help us like Gomer to want to live faithfully by your side. Lord, to allow you to lead us, that we would follow you in wherever you might be leading us to go and however you might be wanting us to live. Lord, may you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.